Hello and welcome to the October 2013 edition of the Lesbian Gay Law Notes podcast. Um, before we can go any further, some of you are taking the time to give us stars in iTunes, and it's a big help. So if you haven't done that already, please do it. Right, Art? Right. You hate that part where I shamelessly plug the it's podcast. because you're using time. We should be using okay, sorry, sorry. cases. Sorry, sorry. I'm Brad Snyder, Executive Director of the LGBT Bar Association of Greater New York, and with me... Rare and ago is Professor Arthur Leonard of New York Law School, the chief editor and writer of Lesbian Gay Law Notes, the most comprehensive monthly publication covering the latest legal and legislative developments affecting the LGBT community here and abroad. And as we tape, we are, um, you know, by the time this is posted, we'll either be in a continuing government shutdown situation, uh, we may have a cataclysmic default, the world may come to an end. But that has nothing to do with the LGBT. Well, leaders. it affects everything. Oh, well, it affects everything, yes. So we'll see what happens on that front. Yes, all these benefits that we won in the Windsor case will be <laughs> unavailable because no one will be paying benefits. See? It, yes. it does all come back yes. to that. Okay. All right, so we're going to start with the lead story of the October issue of Law Notes, uh, and it concerns marriage equality litigation news out of New Jersey and Illinois. So we'll start in New Jersey with the case of Garden State Equality v. Dow. Uh, somehow I have it as Doe in my head, but Dow, where in the wake of the Windsor decision, Lambda Legal has filed a motion for summary judgment that was granted. Um, can you give us a little bit of sense of the argument there and specifically how the Windsor case became so important to the, to the outcome? Okay, so this uh, case was actually filed a while back uh, in response to a refusal by the New Jersey Supreme Court to declare that New Jersey civil unions were unequal to marriage and therefore violated the New Jersey Constitution. So Lambda filed this new case in order to establish a factual record. Uh, the case survived a motion to dismiss. They started in on discovery, and then the Windsor case was decided on uh, June 26th. And after the Windsor case, announcements came out from several federal agencies that same-sex couples who were lawfully married would be recognized as such for purposes of various federal benefits programs. Uh, and uh, most importantly, for purposes of uh, tax filings and uh, estate tax and things of that sort. So Lambda filed this motion for summary judgment saying that now that the federal government is recognizing same-sex couples for all, as, as uh, legally married for all different purposes, but not civil union partners, not domestic partners, only legally married people, the refusal of New Jersey to allow its same-sex couples in the state to get married was putting them in an unequal position as a matter of law. Uh, so Lambda is saying, we don't need a trial on this. We can take judicial notice right now. We've got all these announcements from the various federal agencies. We've got a revenue ruling from the tax people. We can show now that civil union partners in New Jersey are clearly unequal as a matter of law. Because in the absence, because of New Jersey by denying their marriage, it is right. denying them the, the ability to have federal recognition right. in post Windsor. And the AG, um, you know, at the instruction of Governor Chris Christie or the the prodding of Governor Christie, Christie who's defending the well, – uh, Christie said, said to them, come up with some arguments here. Yeah, well, okay. So the <laughs> – Come up with – because I don't want – to have to allow people to get married unless the people of the state say so in a referendum. That's been his position all along. Yes. Okay. So we, we won't talk too much about his position. But we will say what the AG has done here is presented a number of arguments in response. Right. And one of them I wanted to ask you about, which you highlight in the note on this, is which I found interesting and one might also say is a bit clever. And specifically, it's the AG that argued that any difference in the treatment of same-sex and different-sex couples after the Windsor decision, the kind of differences that you just talked about, are not as a result of anything that the New Jersey government has failed or failed to do or otherwise done. It's rather because the federal government refuses to extend 
federal recognition to civil unions. So essentially, the people you should be suing litigants are the federal government, because if only they would say that civil unions are entitled to the same treatment as marriages, we'd be fine. So New Jersey hasn't done anything here. We're just sort of, yeah, you know, they, they, kind of waiting saying, around, and yeah. federal government's doing its own thing. So right, what, do you, what do you make well, of that Well, they're saying there's no state action here, yeah. that we haven't done anything since the Windsor decision, uh, and therefore you can't sue us for not doing anything since the Windsor decision. Uh, but uh, the judge uh, in this case, Mercer County Superior Court Judge Mary Jacobson, who granted the uh, summary judgment motion, she said, that's nonsense, basically. She said, of course you're doing something. You're maintaining a legal structure under which same-sex couples can't get married. And, and, and that, that the enactment, when it was made, that excluded right. gays from the institution of marriage was certainly was a state, state action. action. Right. But, but furthermore, she says, well, it's true the federal government isn't recognizing civil union partners, but they're not being sued in this case. You are. And so the question is, are you doing something that puts same-sex couples in an unequal position with different sex Contrary to the command of, 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 the, of the New, of the New Jersey, Jersey Supreme, Supreme Court, Court in Lewis versus Harris, the, the case in which the court said that the New Jersey Constitution requires that same-sex couples have equal rights and benefits with different sex couples. Uh, so uh, what has happened in this case now, uh, the court set October 21st as a deadline for the state to begin allowing people to marry, and Governor Christie instructed the attorney general to file an appeal directly to the New Jersey Supreme Court, bypassing the appellate division, the intermediate court, uh, and he also asked them to seek a stay. And so they're asking first Judge Jacobson, and if she won't grant the stay and the Supreme Court accepts the appeal, they'll probably grant the stay, uh, but they'll have to move fast because October 21, as we're taping this on October 10th, isn't too far away. Interesting stuff. And uh, one of the other arguments the, the AG made here is that this concept that it's premature for this decision to even be reached because the federal government, all the agencies haven't rolled out their post-Windsor guidance and, and the implication that maybe uh, maybe there will be a lot of agencies recognizing civil unions in the same way they do marriages and also saying there's a bill in Congress that may, may afford full rights uh, or federal recognition to civil unions. I was wondering, there's a larger question here, but what do you make of that argument? Well, I thought it was stupid. <laughs> let's, let's be blunt. I mean, the point is that the major federal agencies that we're concerned about have all said that they have no authority to recognize civil unions. So whether they're going to recognize marriages uh, using a place of celebration rule or a place of domicile rule is sort of irrelevant. The issue is, are same-sex couples in New Jersey put in a disadvantageous position by the state by not being allowed to marry? in terms of their rights. And as far as the, the bill, because there is a bill pending in Congress to extend recognition to civil union partners and domestic partners, it ain't going anywhere. <laughs> I mean, not, not as long as Republicans control the House of Representatives, and the House of Representatives isn't up for an election until November 2014. So that's not going anywhere. And meanwhile, and this is an argument that the plaintiffs make, and it's a very valid argument when you're talking about constitutional rights, every minute that you are being subjected to unequal treatment is a harm. And this is, in fact, Lambda has filed an opposition to the motion for a stay, arguing, look, every minute that our clients are denied the right to marry is another constitutional harm, another injury to their constitutional rights. And so a stay shouldn't be granted. Now, I can't imagine that the, the stay is not going to be granted. Uh, but as I mentioned, and I think you were going to get around to this later anyway, uh, there's a political aspect to this as well because the legislature passed a marriage equality bill, which Governor Christie vetoed, and January 14th is the deadline for an override vote. So the plans were that the Democratic leadership uh, in both houses of the legislature was going to bring the matter up for an override vote after the November elections. 
Uh, it's widely expected Governor Christie will be reelected by a substantial margin, but that the Democrats will probably retain control of both houses. But whether they do or they don't, there's going to be a lame duck session of the old legislature, which is going to meet before the end of the year. And so there may be a vote which will make this lawsuit moot. Well, and you, you speculate a bit, and it, we, we do this with, with respect to the Illinois case, which we'll get to in a second, but that the judicial developments here, you're saying, may actually provide a little momentum to get the legislative enactment for a reason that I would not have anticipated, which well, is well, the, tell, tell the listeners. Well, well, which it, well, well, one reason, which I think everyone would anticipate, is that the Supreme Court's decision suggests to everybody that this is, uh, this is an issue whose time has come. And when you look at the public opinion polls as well, New Jersey over 60 percent in support of same-sex marriage. But the other point, which I think is a significant one, is that the Republicans in the legislature uh, and Republican votes will be needed in both houses, I think, to uh, create the supermajority necessary to override the veto. They demanded that this, uh, this bill provide protection for religious organizations, provide religious exemptions, uh, set up orderly procedures for dealing with the expansion of the concept of marriage to include same-sex couples in New Jersey. And so the resulting bill has all kinds of provisions that uh, would probably be good to have in place when same-sex marriage takes effect. Uh, if they just leave it to a court to order it, none of that will be there. So I would think as a practical matter, it would be an incentive to them, uh, since they see the direction the wind is blowing in the courts, to override the veto and put the statute into effect so they can have an orderly transition to this new marital regime. Interesting. In and be before we turn to Illinois, I wanted to ask you one more. Uh, occasionally I ask you to sort of reflect uh, on a little bit of history and mm -hmm. sort of the larger context. I mean, with respect to the arguments that, that you labeled stupid, um, which I think I agree with, about the um, premature uh, – it's premature because we don't know yeah. what Congress – these agencies are going to do, et cetera. Can you reflect on <laughs> those type of arguments, the fact that that's what – our opponents in some places, like New Jersey, yeah. which is unique. At least among they others. know that they don't have good arguments. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, as opposed to the head-on argument that used to be just, you know, back in the day, you know, gays are, you know, depraved with one argument or were harmful yeah. to children or, you know, fill in the blank, that we've now landed on, well, there's some action in Congress that might recognize civil unions, so let's slow down. I mean, what does that say about where we are? Well, it says that we've won, the, we've won on the merits here because uh, – Years ago, we had the New Jersey Supreme Court saying that we're entitled to equal treatment. As long as the federal government was refusing to recognize same-sex marriages, the most that the state could give in the way of equal treatment was all the rights and benefits under state law. But now the playing field has shifted dramatically. And now that the federal government will recognize the marriages, every jurisdiction that has civil unions and domestic partnerships is going to be susceptible to the argument that Lambda is making here. Great. All right. So we're gonna we are gonna turn to Illinois, which I, I think will be brief. Which is a civil union state. Exactly. Good yeah. segue, Art. So uh, these are two cases, right? Darby v. Orr and Lazaro v. Orr. Yeah, one was brought by the ACLU, the other by Lambda Legal, but they've been consolidated for trial before a lesbian judge in Chicago. I did not know that. <laughs> yes. Um, so first of all, this is a they contend that the the, the claim here is that the Illinois denial uh, Illinois denial of marriage rights to same sex couples violates equal protection and due process under the Illinois Constitution and. Um, you know, the folks who are, are defending in this, and I just can't get over how active these people seem to be, the county clerks 
the ones defend or and not all of them. Just not, all, <laughs> not the Cook County. But what is it about see, the county it's, clerk? It's not the Cook County clerk. The okay. Cook County clerk is very happy to give out marriage licenses. That's Mr. Orr, the name okay. defendant. And the governor doesn't want to defend this. The attorney general doesn't want to defend uh, the exclusion of same-sex couples. It's I think it's basically from southern Illinois, which is and, a more conservative Okay, part so you've of the answered state. one of my thoughts on this is the county clerks often are no, what they are just a reflection of perhaps the more and, conservative. And the county clerks were rounded up by a public interest litigation group, the Thomas More Society, which is a bunch of conservative Catholic lawyers who want to oppose same-sex Okay, so that gets to my second That's bit of speculation, really which is yeah. if I'm a county clerk, which is, you know, not the highest yeah. position in government, this is a real, you know, if you're a conservative and you're looking to maybe move on to a slightly higher office than county clerk, and I think there's a few of them yeah. out there. Um, it might you know, be political it, on, on their part, but it's, it's also because many of them may have very strong beliefs uh, that this is wrong, that same-sex marriage is wrong, and they don't want their office to be required to issue these licenses. You know, we have we have conscientious objector clerks in New York. There was uh, some kerfluffle. New York after, is a very big state. After or... the New York marriage equality, well, so is Illinois. After the marriage <laughs> equality thing went into effect in New York, we had some clerks upstate who didn't want to give licenses. I know. So, so I'm, not, I'm not losing. So too sleep. sometimes I'm these statutes, that. one of the compromises in the statutes was that a conscientious objector clerk wouldn't have to issue a license as long as they arranged for someone else to issue it. Yeah, that's true. Well, that's okay. Yeah, that's the kind of compromise. All right. So that's that's an aside, so, but it so was on my Illinois, mind. So tell us about the Illinois yeah, this case. Was What's a, going this, on there? This was a motion to dismiss, uh, and Judge Hall uh, denied in part, granted in part. The plaintiffs were asserting four different legal theories. She threw out two of the theories and said two of the theories can proceed. The uh, theories that she threw out were uh, sex discrimination and uh, violation of privacy. The theories she allowed to proceed in the case were sexual orientation discrimination and the fundamental right to marry. But she said still to be established in this case, because this was just a ruling on a motion to dismiss, is what the level of judicial review will be. Uh, in analyzing the claims put forward by the plaintiffs, she said it is possible that the plaintiffs can establish that sexual orientation is a suspect classification under the Illinois Constitution. It's possible they can establish that the right to marry is a fundamental right. If they can do that, we're going to be in heightened scrutiny territory, which means that the burden will fall on those county clerks from southern Illinois to prove that the state has some very, very important justification for excluding same-sex couples from marrying. That's going to be very difficult to establish since we have a civil union statute. Mm -hmm. So the state has already, through its political process, made a policy decision that same-sex couples are entitled to equal treatment. Thereby, as you, as you point out, sort of removing yeah. the intellectual right. thrust behind some of these right. other arguments. Certainly the, the arguments about uh, channeling procreation and the best household for raising children, all of that stuff goes by the boards when the state has already said – that same-sex couples have the same rights under our domestic relations So law. as you say, I mean, the, the analysis in New Jersey, post-Windsor, you Applies think is, is going to apply in Illinois, and, 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 I think and you talk about Nevada, and you talk about... Yeah, the, Nevada and Hawaii are very important because in both of those states, we had lawsuits in the federal district courts seeking marriage equality, lost before the district judges. Both of them are on appeal to the Ninth Circuit. The Ninth Circuit already has a briefing schedule on both of them. There will probably be oral arguments in the spring or summer, uh, the Ninth Circuit may be the furthest along in terms of getting a case to the Supreme Court under the 14th Amendment. And those are both federal cases, so, so we, it will be 14th Amendment. So it's fair to say, let's end on this, that we see the beginnings of the apocalypse that Justice Scalia yes. dissenting in Windsor. The beginning of the end. The beginning that, that, that all of these states 
you know, yes. are going to be, you know, these cases that are pending in these states and new cases that are new going to be cases. brought are going to be able to use Kennedy's analysis, uh, no, which uh, you probably wouldn't right. call analysis, um, you know, to topple the exclusion for marriage in these states. Well, well, basically, the Windsor case seems to have said that no justification for refusing to recognize uh, same-sex couple marriages by the federal government is rat meets the national basis test, at the very least. Uh, there's no sufficient justification, said, said Justice Kennedy, to uh, allow the federal government to discriminate. If there's no the justification for the federal government to discriminate, what justification is there for a state government to discriminate? Especially if the state government, as in New Jersey, Illinois, right, Hawaii, and Nevada, step already has a civil union act. So we have a moment of where we are very happy that Justice Scalia appears to be right in some part of his analysis. Yeah, and uh, Justice Scalia, in fact, as we, we commented when we discussed the Windsor case back in July, he puts the roadmap right there in his dissent. He takes a big hunk of Justice Kennedy's opinion. And chunk, he, I think. He, he, he I don't he know does, where your mind is. Yeah, he, he, <laughs> he draws lines through words and interpolates words. And he says, see, here's how the majority opinion can be used in a same-sex marriage case under the 14th Amendment. So he's already laid it out for us. And uh, as, as I think I observed in the article, uh, or if I didn't, I should have, in his dissent in Lawrence versus Texas a decade ago, he said this was coming. He said that the DeLawrence decision would lead into same-sex marriage, and he was right. All right. Sometimes Scully is right. We have to agree that. <laughs> Perfect. Um, so we're going to take a short break. You're going to have to keep me a little calm when we discuss the next case because occasionally cases touch a nerve with me. Yeah. And as you know, I think already this is one yeah. of those cases. As a papa, you're really Well, that's one of them, yeah. uh, one of the reasons. So we're going to take a short break. When we return, we'll be discussing a rather um, troubling, horrific – what adjective would you use? Uh, cutting. Cutting, correct. Uh, actually, literally, which yeah. is really scary. Case out of South Carolina involving a sex reassignment surgery performed on a 19-month-old child. And you heard that right, a 19-month-old child. Stay with us. So we're back discussing the case of M.C. v. Aronson. It's a case out of South Carolina. Um, let's begin by... You know, in a lot of cases, you have to set out the facts, but I think here it's important to get some of the facts down here. So we have a child who's referred to as MC, uh, who's born with um, what, what what is a condition that many people refer to as intersexuality, uh, referring to situations where newborn's gender is uh, physically appears to be ambiguous. And um, the doctors in this case, um, you know, by the time the doc the child reaches 19 months old, and we'll discuss some of the history for the child in terms of uh, his biological parents and his adoptive parents. Um, decide that they're going to perform sex reassignment surgery and they're going to decide that this child is female. female. Uh, so fast forwarding a little bit, uh, after several years later, right? I mean, this, this operation takes place in, um, November, 2004 or sometime in 2004, uh, fast forward a couple of years, um, MC is being raised actually, according to, to his gender identity as a, as, as a male. Um, and the only problem is the doctors here have taken a sort of somewhat permanent and drastic solution of, of, of removing his male genitalia. Are we allowed to say penis? You can say iTunes? penis, okay. and there's nothing. I don't find anything about this case like right. funny. There's nothing I mean, erotic about. No, this, case. this is. But it, it, they literally yeah. destroyed his 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 male reproductive organs. Right. Uh, uh, obviously, and, a penis. And so you know, we we need to we need to do a little background here because uh, the general public 
is largely unaware of intersexuality and, and the phenomenon of delay in sexual development, DSD, which is the technical term that's now being used by many people. Uh, and I was totally unaware of this until I had a speaking engagement uh, at a law school, Vermont Law School. They have a, a day, a gay law day each year. And the keynote speaker was the then head of the Intersex Society of North America. And that's the first time I'd ever heard about intersexuality, that one or two out of every few thousand births involves genital ambiguity. That is, when the doctor delivers the child and takes a look to see whether it's male or female, the reaction is, oh, my God, what's this? Mm-hmm. You know, it's, it's, it's too small to be a penis. It's too large uh, to be feminine uh, genitalia. It's, and, of course, on an infant, it's, everything's kind of tiny anyway. Mm-hmm. Uh, but once plastic surgery came along in the 1950s, the reaction of surgeons to this was, well, you know, we can, we can take care of this. We can produce someone who isn't sort of this or sort of that, but who's definitely this, and the definitely this is female. Because uh, to put it in crude terms, I, I understand that surgeons say it's easier to dig a hole than build a pole. Amazing. And, and so in these cases, they would tell the parents there's a medical emergency, we have to attend to it quickly, that the child will be psychologically scarred if they grow up with ambiguous genitals. And so we're going to do an operation, and the child will grow up as a normal girl. And the problem is sex is in the brain. Sex uh, is not housed in the genitals. It's in the brain. It's in the genes. But it's not in the genitals. And so a child at some point will come to an understanding of his or her gender identity. And in a tragic proportion of these cases, the child who has been essentially castrated, Mm. rendered sterile, and uh, been given an artificial vagina, discovers his male gender identity and is stuck. I mean, it's, it's really tragic. Uh, even, even those who are, who are female who have had the surgery are stuck in a certain way because although the surgery may not render them sterile uh, because uh, they do have internal uh, female organs, it, it has reduced the sensations that they can't take pleasure in having sex. Many uh, intersexual women claim that the, the surgery is harmful to them. Too. Well, and that, but, a, but the point here, this is the state that did it in this case. Well, and I wanted to get and to that's that. That's what made what, it a constitutional And let's case. get to that. The, yeah. the reason why this child at the time that the, the surgery occurred was in state custody, in effect, right. was – was that the, the biological parents, uh, you know, for, for reasons relating to neglect, this child was removed from right. the care of, of, of yeah. his biological parents. And, and sort of parents. reading into the case, it seems to me that the biological parents really freaked out at this. Mm-hmm. And so uh, the state took custody. The child was in the custody of the state, living in uh, with foster parents. And it was doctors at the state hospital and social service employees who determined to follow this path of the surgery. And this, this was at a time before the legal parental rights had been extinguished of the, of the birth parents, but at a time when they no longer had custody of the well, child. And I want to pause on that for a moment because, I mean, we'll get to the fact that this is a constitutional challenge brought right. for the reasons you just articulated, that this is a state action by, right. by the doctors. But here one of the ways that the state defends – um, which the court had great skepti- was skeptical of the, the idea that it even happened, uh, is they defend by saying the biological mother consented. Um, and leaving aside that we have reason to doubt that that consent actually happened, this is, a, this is a person that the state has declared 
should not have custody of this child for reasons of neglect, right. and they're going to they're going to rely on her consent right. to, to this surgery. Does that make any sense? No, and and the uh, district judge here, David Norton, didn't think it made any sense, and and but I think uh, premised the decision uh, rejecting the consent defense by saying, look, you presented me with no documentary evidence of this. Uh, there's no written consent here. There's actually no evidence at all that the mother actually consented. You're just sort of asserting it in your motion to dismiss the case. Uh, so uh, there's no consent here. And we could ask, should parents be able to consent to the performance of this kind of surgery on an infant? Well, and that does go to sort of the core question. This is this is less a legal question, I think, than sort of a... Um you know, a ethics ethics which is is yeah. we know that the surgery in, in many many ways is going to be permanent or in in, in significant well, ways permanent, yes. right? Okay, we we know that children's identities takes years sometimes to to fully form, right. and and we know that as a nineteen month old child, perhaps yeah, maybe there will be some challenges with respect to uh, ambiguity, but it sounds like. Some of this was done more for, I mean, it, it, it's more for our needs as adults right. to sort of have clarity than for the children's, the child's well-being. Yeah. I mean, would he, would he have been better served by having, quote, unquote, a little ambiguity until he came to his understanding of his, of his gender identity right. with the full range of options still now, available now, to him? Now, intersexual men who haven't had the surgery have a penis, and... You know, it's it tends to be much smaller than normal, and that may cause some kind of psychological anxiety and stuff. But uh, that's that's a far cry from discovering yourself in an artificially made female body when you're when you have a male identity. Uh, in other words, this was an unnecessary gender reassignment procedure. It was deemed necessary by the doctors for whatever reasons of their own. It was deemed necessary by the social worker. There were no parents in the, in the picture at the time to even really consent. I mean, the, although their legal parental rights hadn't been extinguished yet, they weren't in custody of the child. Now, uh, subsequently, uh, the child was adopted by the Crawfords. So MC is M. Crawford. Mm -hmm. So the, the Crawfords adopted the child. The child, uh, when he became old enough to perceive issues of gender, identified as male, wanted to be treated as a boy, wanted to dress as a boy, you know, and... Uh, had tragically been rendered sterile as a result of this operation and didn't have a penis. And at some point, a decision was made. Uh, the child now is... Uh, yeah, let me correct. I mean, the know, child, really yeah. these events is the, the child so. is more eight or nine years old yeah. at the time the complaint's brought. And so now the complaint is brought by the parents on behalf of the child against the state saying, look, our 14th, the 14th Amendment rights of due process and equal protection have been really trampled on. It's, it's both procedural and substantive due process here. They said there was no hearing process. I mean, this was something that was going to fundamentally alter the existence and identity of this person, and yet the state did it without any due process. You could have a hearing. You could appoint a guardian ad litem. You could have someone to advocate on behalf of the child who could do some research into this and discover that, in fact, medical authorities have been moving away from performing these operations. In fact, the European Parliament recently passed a resolution calling on member states to look into this issue of intersexuality and surgery and whether it's really necessary. So Europe is moving ahead of us on this. Uh, but uh, the judge says, look, there are real due process issues here, substantive due process issues, because 
the courts have long identified uh, the ability to procreate as a liberty protected by the 14th Amendment. And certainly in cases where the state wants to sterilize someone for some reason, there has to be due process. This is a sterilization procedure. It has to be due process. So uh, the, uh, the state officials then say, well, we should be protected by qualified immunity. Uh, there's this doctrine of qualified immunity because we think it's a bad idea that government officials who have discretionary functions can be second-guessed by judges. Uh, unless it's, of course, clear that what they're doing is unconstitutional. So the qualified immunity can be lost if it is clearly established that what the public official is doing is unconstitutional. And the judge says, well, there's a strong case to be made here that it's clearly established that you have to have due process before you sterilize somebody. And it's certainly uh, established, if not necessarily in this context, of an intersexual baby, but it certainly establishes as a matter of law that the right to procreate is a fundamental right, recognized by the Supreme Court in many cases, and therefore taking some action which would deprive somebody of the right to procreate, you need to have a really strong justification for that, and the court may step in here. And, and uh, let's leave on art, by the way, great. I mean, always a great job on explaining these cases, but particularly with the context of what's going on in Europe and other places, uh, very useful stuff. But on that point, you label this in the headline in historic litigation. Is this, yeah. is this because this is the, the first, first, the first time this, that this kind of challenge? Yes. As it's, it's a question of first impression in the United States. There are some decisions in other countries, uh, but this would be a first for the U.S., Interesting. All right. Well, a lot to learn on that front uh, for everyone. Uh, we'll take another short break. When we return, we'll be discussing a Sixth Circuit case, which again <laughs> presents a question that you keep saying is heading up to the Supreme Court, right, of whether business corporations may assert a free exercise of religion claim. So stay with us. We are back discussing the case of Autocam Corp v. Sibelius, and as I signaled at the break, this involves a, uh, a business corporation. It's a closely held corporation, not a large publicly held com uh, corporation that is uh, asserting, wants to assert a free exercise of religion, religion claim. It's in the context, a familiar context. It's not wanting to provide coverage under the health plan uh, for contraception for women because the owners of these companies find it to be immoral to provide such coverage. And they want to say, well, you know, the reason why they're allowed to do that is because they have a obviously a right uh, under their religious freedom uh, to deny such coverage. And sort of we've been seeing several of these cases, which I know you'll talk about, Art. And one question that comes to mind is this is not a clearly an LGBT-focused case, but you make the case in the note for why it really matters to our community, and I was wondering if you okay. could give, uh, give a little context right. to that. Well, re refer you back to uh, previous uh, podcast when we talked about Elaine Photography, the case from New Mexico of the wedding photographer who refused to do a commitment ceremony for a same-sex couple because she did not approve of same-sex marriage. Now, her business was incorporated, and uh, she argued that she should have a religious exemption under New Mexico law from complying with the public accommodations statute. Uh, she said Mexico has a Religious Freedom Protection Act, and this was just protecting her religious freedom. And the court said, no, you're a business. When you're a business, you go out there and you sell services, in this case, to the public, you can't discriminate based on sexual orientation. Uh, and the uh, New Mexico Supreme Court totally rejected the idea of a religious exemption for a business. And here we're seeing the same thing play out 
in response to the Affordable Care Act. Uh, some of the Affordable Care Act actually went into effect uh, previously, uh, not just you know this month people were able to sign up if they could get online. <laughs> you know, but, but people were you know supposed to sign up because on January 1st, 2014, everyone's supposed to have coverage, either by buying it or by an employer providing it. Uh, but what went into effect on January 1st, 2013, were the requirements under uh, employer-provided group health plans to cover prescription contraception for women. Uh, that's part of what has to be in the minimum package that will be acceptable to satisfy the statute. And there is an exemption in there for churches and other religious organizations. Uh, the religious organizations say the exemption isn't broad enough because it requires that uh, the insurance company assume the expense of providing the contraception, and they say we shouldn't have to provide it at all. And I just saw today that a religious organization has filed a suit, and I'm sure there, will, there are many around the country claiming that uh, even the workaround for religious organizations in the statute isn't enough. But there's no dispute that religious corporations do have free exercise rights. What we're talking about are business corporations, and distinguishing between as you say, uh, large publicly held corporations with thousands of shareholders, no one is claiming that they can make a free exercise claim. These cases, and uh, we're talking now about cases from not just this new Sixth Circuit case from September, but a Third Circuit case from July and a Tenth Circuit case from June, these are all small, closely held corporations. They're obviously business corporations. They provide goods and services to the public but they're owned by a small group of shareholders, sometimes members of the same family, who share religious conviction and who feel that requiring their business to provide this contraception coverage is, in effect, requiring them to provide it because they identify themselves with the small business that they completely own. Uh, and they are making this argument in three circuits, well, more circuits, but three circuits in which we have circuit court decisions. And in the Sixth Circuit, in September, the court found for the government that, in fact, a business corporation does not have any First Amendment right to free exercise of religion. They said a business corporation can't have a religion. Only people have a religion. Uh, and the corporations have been trying to make the argument uh, that under the Citizens United decision of the Supreme Court, corporations have First Amendment rights. Uh, the Supreme Court there said First Amendment uh, right of freedom of speech and political speech. And why speech. is that? You, you, I, at first glance, it, it, you it would, seems logical. logical. And I was wondering if we could pause it, because when I did first read, read the note on this, I, I no. confess I didn't read the, the, the case. I'm sorry. That's why we have you, Mr. <laughs> expert. Um, at first glance, I said, oh, well, you know, why would there be a distinction between if they if the court wants to stay, they have the right, you know, they, they can participate in elections and they have right. free, speech, free speech rights. Why is the, the free exercise well, of religion so different? Well, well, one reason for that is these are circuit courts, and, of course, the Supreme Court precedent is what you look at when you're a circuit court judge. And the Supreme Court has identified First Amendment speech rights for corporations but not First Amendment free exercise rights. So there's no Supreme Court precedent in support of it. Uh, in addition... They say religion is different. Uh, religion is a matter of beliefs uh, and that business corporations don't practice religion. Business corporations practice business. I mean, they sell goods and services. Now, these small corporations, uh, you know, these, these owned by usually by family members, they say we enact our religion in our lives, including our work lives, that we follow religious precepts in running our business, 
that our business is not proselytizing or something like that, although some of them do hold prayer meetings for their employees at the beginning of the day. Uh, and this is significant because although a lot of people work for big public corporations, an awful lot of people work for small businesses. In right. fact, small businesses are the majority of businesses in the United States by an overwhelming number. So if small businesses have a religious exemption based on the personal beliefs of their owners, then a big hole is being carved out or a big exemption is being carved out from public accommodations laws as well, not just from the Affordable Care Act but from discrimination statutes. Uh, and these cases just keep coming up. There's a new one uh, that, that came up since the uh, last issue of Law Notes went to bed and it will be reported in November. <laughs> but uh, there's, there's an art gallery that rents itself out as a wedding location and they're in Iowa and they're refusing to allow a same-sex couple and the same-sex couple filed a charge against them with the State Human Rights Commission and so they've run into court seeking a declaratory judgment that they enjoy an exemption because they and this is like the next step because uh, the AutoCam case is a corporation this is an unincorporated business Wow. and uh, an important part of the court's analysis here is saying when you establish a corporation, the corporation is a separate legal entity from its owners. This is the whole idea of corporations. Except that if you rest it too much on the, sort of yeah. the formality, you yeah. get into the situation that, that you just described. Business, it was, oh, fine, yeah. we'll be a business, but we just won't incorporate. We'll give up some of the benefits of being well, incorporated. Giving up the benefits of incorporation is pretty substantial. Well, it thing. is, depending on the nature of the business, right. though. I mean, yeah. for some, it would be, you know, the benefits of potentially being able to exclude, you know, not be subject to various right. onerous things like anti-discrimination laws might Possibly. outweigh some of the Possibly, benefits. depending how far uh, the courts go in recognizing. But the point is here that the Sixth Circuit in September found for the government, and the Third Circuit uh, in uh, July in the Conestoga Wood Specialties case also found for the government, but the Tenth Circuit in June found for the business, Hobby Lobby stores. <laughs> and, uh, that sounds and, like and, fun. And they said uh, they, they upheld a preliminary injunction against the enforcement of the Affordable Care Act in this respect against that business, and there was just a new decision within the past few days by a three-judge panel uh, this was an on-bank decision in Hobby Lobby stores. There was a three-judge panel decision that said we're bound by the on-bank. So we now have two circuit decisions in the Tenth Circuit. And several cert petitions have been filed in the past few weeks. Uh, so you, your expectation is this will be resolved by the Supreme this is, Court? Well, you know, your, 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 your favorite lawyer, uh, Paul Clement. The guy, we couldn't remember his name the last right. podcast, right? He had faded Clement, from our, who, our consciousness. Who, who represented Blag <laughs> be, before the Supreme Court in the Windsor case. Uh, Paul He's Clement, a former, former Solicitor General, was quoted in the press within the past day or two as saying, 99% sure that this is going to go on cert, that it's going to go to the Supreme Court. And he's Court. involved. Yeah, he will probably end up being involved. Who knows? Well, uh, good for him after but, but his historic loss in, right. the, in well, the gay marriage cases. But, but this obviously has a great potential to affect lesbian and gay rights in terms of non-discrimination. Uh, we're we're going to leave it there. Well said. We're going to take a short break, and we're going to conclude with a very short of-note segment brought to you by the one and only Arthur Leonard. <laughs> We're back uh, with our out of note segment, and it's, uh, it involves one of the giant corporations in the world. I think and the some largest, news, the largest. largest. Uh, this Sign is, of the Times news, this, as you this, put this it. This involves ExxonMobil. I've heard of them. Yes, they're a merger of Exxon and Mobil. Yeah. Now, Mobil <laughs> had a domestic partnership policy, Exxon did not. When they merged, 
Exxon rescinded Mobil's domestic partnership policy and refused to provide benefits. Uh, Thereby now, vastly increasing the morale of all LGBT employees at the former. Well, they all Mobile. went. They all went to work for Amico, I guess. <laughs> but uh, well, most of the most of the energy industry does provide domestic partnership yeah, no, Exxon because, was a, was a whole because they're international companies that do business in lots of countries where it's customary now. And in fact, Exxon Mobil has provided domestic partnership benefits in Europe, uh, but they weren't doing it in the U.S. But the mighty Windsor case strikes again now that the uh, IRS has said that they're going to recognize same-sex marriages for federal tax purposes, ExxonMobil said, okay, we're going to recognize same-sex marriages too. So they're extending benefits to same-sex married employees, right. not civil unions, not domestic partners, not people who just happen to be living together and will file an affidavit. But it's a step. It's a sign of the times the world's largest business corporation is now going to provide uh, benefits. They're going to recognize same-sex marriages. All right. That's something. That is something. Uh, that's all the time we have today. Uh, thanks for listening. To read the latest issue of Law Notes, please become a member of the LGBT Bar Association of Greater New York or a Law Notes subscriber by visiting us at www.le-gal.org. This and future podcasts can be found online in iTunes or at legal.podbean.com. And you can follow us on Twitter at legal.org. Actually, that's not our, our Twitter handle anymore. It's LGBT Bar and Y. We changed that. Did you know that? No, because no. you're not on Twitter. Or you no. can find us on Facebook, and I know Art Leonard is on Facebook if anybody wants to find him. All right. Take care. <laughs>